I liked it. I didn't love it because even though I found the situation engaging and, you know, it was a good movie, but it did not capture my imagination to the extent that the next day I was still thinking about it. You know, in that way, it was sort of visual potato chips. And when I say I like his movies, the movie I'm thinking about the most is Afterlife, which is a story of what happens after you die, where you end up in what seems like the Department of Motor Vehicles kind of place where you're being processed. You have to pick one memory from your past to the exclusion of all other memories. And the wonderful thing about it, if you if you watch it, is that if you have trouble remembering things, you can re request the tapes and you get a VHS tape that you put into a player. It's so quaint now, I'm sure, you know, it's not gonna hold up over time because people, what, what is that? What is that machine? Why aren't they using the cloud? But he's great at taking characters who usually don't get to say anything about their lives and gives you a chance to see what people think. Hello, welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Broker and women talking, starting with Broker. Now, Mike, I don't know if a lot of people know that this is out because it was there very briefly in Columbia. I know it played at the Charles, but this is, you know, the latest movie from this particular director. Where do you want to start with this movie? Well, let's start with the director, <laughs> <laughs> Hirokazu Koreeda. And in fact, uh, Koreeda is a, a well-known Japanese director, and his best-known film would be Shoplifters, which did have fairly wide distribution in international festivals, art houses, and so on. But he's actually quite prolific as a Japanese director. Now, one thing about Koreeda that is so striking is his family's almost always, his films rather, almost always deal with families. <laughs> and specifically with families that are somehow marginalized. By that, I mean, these are people oftentimes at the edges of society. In shoplifting, it's a family that quite, quite literally does that to make its living. And, uh, you know, it, but it's a happy, dysfunctional family, if you will. And so again, that film, you know, won the, uh, the top prize at the Cannes Festival, uh, that, all that attention I, I alluded to. Um, this latest film, Broker, from Corey Ada is striking in the sense that he has actually worked outside of Japan. His previous film to this one, The Truth, is in French and, and English and uh, stars Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche and Ethan Hawke. And so, you know, he's, he's worked away from Japan. And I say that for our present purposes because with this film, Broker, this Japanese director is working in, in South Korea in, in the city of Busan. And so what we can talk about here are the central characters and, and what really is a very, very promising premise. It, it really is, is, a, is a strong idea for a film. And then, you know, in terms of how he deals with these characters and with these stories. And uh, with that introductory remark, let me turn it back over to Marie to start actually talking about the film. Well, the working title was Baby Box Broker, but they trimmed it down to simply Broker. And this is a real phenomenon. Apparently, it exists in Japan, but even more so in Korea, where you can take a, if you have an unwanted child, you can take it to a place where you place it in a box and someone will, you know, it's, a, it's an organized thing. It's not like the, it's going to be like waiting. Somebody on the other side of the box takes the child and then you are just hoping for the best that that child will then go on to have, you know, be adopted or, you know, find parents that want to raise it. What happens instead in this movie is that the uh, babies are sold, which is why they have the title broker. 
So the premise itself is interesting. And what happens is that a woman puts her baby in the box and then thinks better of it and tries to go back and retrieve it. And then she has to sort of deal with these people who want to broker the sale of her baby. So it's a great setup. And you're right. Corieta likes to create sort of build-it-yourself families. And that's really what happens here. There's a sympathy between her and the people who are trying to broker the baby and all of the emotional problems that come up when you're trying to do something so important. What was your reaction to watching the film, Mike? What did you think? Well, you, you know, again, putting it in career terms, this is a prolific director. And Corieta has made so many films that either involve actual, what we call nuclear families or, or makeshift families, which is the case here. So to present purposes, it is a really neat premise in the sense that, you know, this baby's been left in that baby box, which already is an, an, you know, an interesting situation. I mean, as to the dynamics of that, but the fact that the mother thinks twice, as you say, should she get it back? Then of course, the two guys who find it, I don't want to refer to them as, as criminals in, in, in the gangster sense, but one of them has been in jail. They certainly have been on the wrong side of the law. But this is one reason that he's such an interesting director, is that even though you could easily tally up ways in which they have misbehaved or have bad motives, they're not entirely bad people, let's put it that way. And there's a humanism within not just them, but within this director's overall body of work. I mean, really very sympathetic towards where people are in society. So that makes it interesting to watch. Uh, in that respect, in terms of how I responded to it, when people talk about Corieta in, in terms of um, his temperament and his influences, always inevitably they will mention uh, Vittorio De Sica, you know, because again, think of it, because so often his films oftentimes dealt with issues involving not just families, but children. And, you know, through the eyes of a child to, to sort of play off of something Marie and I are talking about <laughs> in the Friday Night Film series now, but through the eyes of children. And this is a case where the child is, is at the center of the uh, drama, and it's ultimately kind of a, a heartwarming one. Now, I was always engaged by the film. I mean, it really is quite interesting, not just by way of premise, but then how it's developed. One tendency the director has, and I, th I think it's a, I don't say it's a problem here, but for me it was a bit of a concern, is that his running times tend to be leisurely, run a little long. This is a film that frankly I think does wear a little thin as it goes along. I, th I, th I think it's stretched out more than it, than it needs to be, but not to the point where I say it's a problem, quote unquote, more to the point where some of the later scenes I feel like, well, this is just a minor variation on a scene we had a little while ago or and because it is very much a road movie, that's one reason why road movies sometimes run long. You know, when should you stop? <laughs> you know, they keep going. And it's interesting scenery. It's, it's demographically quite interesting, the people they meet along the way. But I think that's an issue of where the director just tends to let it go on to scenes that perhaps you don't actually really need in the film. What's your sense of that, Marie? Because overall, I do like this film. I was always engaged by it. And yet I felt after a while that I sort of had gotten what I was going to get from it. I like this director. I like Corieta. I like the way he puts together various bands of misfits. And he does a good job of that here. But I'm with you. I came into it thinking, I'm going to love this because I like this director. I know what he's going to do with this. What a great premise. But I liked it. I didn't love it because even though I found the situation engaging and, you know, it was a good movie, but it did not capture my imagination to the extent that the next day I was still thinking about it. You know, in that way, it was sort of visual potato chips. And when I say I like his movies, the movie I'm thinking about the most is Afterlife which is a story of what happens after you die, where you end up in what seems like the Department of Motor Vehicles kind of place where you're being processed. You have to pick one memory 
from your past to the exclusion of all other memories. And the wonderful thing about it, if you if you watch it, is that if you have trouble remembering things, you can re request the tapes and you get a VHS tape that you put into a player. It's so quaint now. I'm sure, you know, it's not going to hold up over time because people, what, what is that? What is that machine? Why aren't they using the cloud? But he's great at taking characters who usually don't get to say anything about their lives and gives you a chance to see what people think. And he's really good at that. And that movie, by the way, I think is a, is a really good example. But it also is a little bit slow if you're not engaged in the plot. So I think that this movie is certainly a good movie in his, the canon of all of the things that he's done, but I wouldn't say that it's his best. Well, let me bolster some of the points we've been making. I agree with Marie that Afterlife is, is one of his best films. That was made back in 1999. So in terms of the antique technology, <laughs> a VHS tape, what's a VHS tape, you know? All that, um, you know, that's sort of a momentary distraction, frankly. I mean, it's just like you, you realize, okay, it's a period piece at this point. But the storyline is exactly as, as strong as, as Marie indicates in terms of it really is a, a, a neat idea. But to bolster a second point in terms of his tendency to run long, the film he made after that called Nobody Knows, this is a film where I wanted to like it so much because, again, he has great premises. And Nobody Knows the premises. There are four children who are left alone in an apartment. And it's a matter of like how many weeks and months can go by before anyone notices or cares or whatever and how the kids look after themselves that way. Again, a, a family that is a family, but becomes a kind of makeshift family in that respect. But that film has a running time of 141 minutes. I mean, that may be his, his longest or certainly one of his longest films. That's the point I keep hammering home is that it typically has a great premise and he really develops the characters well and just doesn't quite know when to let go sometimes and it just it, you know it just runs on and on and, and so i think in that film and in several others that's the tendency I, I alluded to before but i'm so glad marie did mention afterlife because if you're looking for other films by him he's he's really a prolific director but if you have to have a short list uh, that certainly would be on the short list yeah there's a great back catalog if you like this movie you can go back and see all kinds of different twists on this same sort of theme in terms of making a family out of, you know, found objects in terms of people. So that's one of the joys of, of watching his films is that there's more of what he has done. So Mike, one thing I wanted to make sure to ask you, did you see a resemblance to the classic Japanese anime film, Tokyo Godfathers with this movie? Yes, I did. <laughs> and it's interesting that, you know, that you know, anime has been so influential in, in, in the gangster genre, Yakuza and all that. Uh, it permeates Japanese culture, doesn't it? And, and so it's not surprising that, that a film like, like that would resemble this one. What was your sense of it? Well, in that one, someone leaves a baby in the garbage on Christmas Eve and then some, you know, homeless people, again, drifters, just sort of adopt the baby. And, you know, it, it's sort of a Christmas story, but it's it's also gritty and really not something you would watch with children, even though it's animated. Very serious story. Well done. And a lot of people have seen it. And that kind of came to mind when I was watching this, just for the simple fact that it's about an abandoned baby. I can see you, know, you say a, something. <laughs> Marie, Marie, you make a really important point in terms of what I call consumer advice. Because with the Japanese anime films, oftentimes they do involve children to some extent, but some of these films really are, you know, very adult in terms of thematic material and edgy in various ways. And, and, and you know, yourself in terms of anything from Japanese animated films to comic books, manga, and so on, a lot of that's really directed as much at an adult audience, right? We tend to think in our country, oh, it's for the kids. Well, this, this is not a Disney cartoon at times. So just on a, on a broader level, 
that kind of sensibility is, as I say, it, it just permeates Japanese culture. So it does sort of cross over. And I wasn't thinking about Tokyo Godfather as I was watching it, but as you mentioned it, sure. I, I mean, you know, how many movies involve putting a, a child, an infant, in either a baby box or a trash can and, and Christmas, no less, right? So, uh, you know, those are things that I guess it's sort of a, a niche category. I don't know if I'd want to watch too many movies like that, but when I do watch them, they are kind of bracing in terms of the basic situation, the premise. Last thing I want to ask you about in terms of this movie is the title, because I actually think Baby Box Broker would have been a better title just for the alliteration and more of an idea of what it's about. I, I can only think about our students in terms of them looking at the title and thinking, yeah, that's me, man. I could not be broker, you know, driving a crappy car and, and just trying to make ends meet and trying to go through school and work a part-time job. I'm not sure the title works. What do you think? I agree very strongly with you. The title's okay, but it's it's so generic that it could be any kind of broker. If you have something as fascinating as a baby box and a baby box <laughs> broker, why not go with that? Maybe it's too much alliteration in, in, in the English title. I don't know. But but I would actually have a title that has at least another word or two in it, because I think it, it you need to key your audience in a bit as to you know what to expect. And broker itself is just it's there and, and your imagination might actually, frankly, head off in the wrong direction, right, in terms of what you'd expect from it. So particularly if you're a film goer who may not know anything about the film, much less this particular director, Corey Ada, I think a little bit of a, of a nudge, a little bit of guidance that way is not a bad idea with, with the film title. Totally agree with you, Mike. Mike, let's move on now to Women Talking, which is based on a true story of a Mennonite colony in Bolivia. And it is a true story and it's a sad story. We'll get into the details of what that involves, but I just finished reading the book about it. It's based on a book. This is also an Academy Award contender in a couple of categories. It is the story of this enclave where the women have been drugged at night with belladonna, which you use to subdue farm animals. And then they are violated by some of the men who are also part of this enclave. And they discover this because one of the women sort of comes to in the middle of the act and then, you know, all hell breaks loose. The man that she catches in the act squeals on the others involved in this plot. And then they are, uh, at first they try to deal with it internally, but it ends up being a bigger issue where law enforcement is involved. So the movie converges at the point where the men are out of town because some of them are in prison. And the remaining men are trying to secure bail for their neighbors. So the women are left alone and they get to talking about what they should do about the situation. Should they stay and do nothing? Should they stay and fight or should they leave? And this is the premise of the movie. And this is what they are discussing, which is why it is called Women Talking. So, Mike, what was your initial reaction to this movie? Well, Marie, I'm smiling as you say this because as you very accurately described the source material and, and the premise, and speaking of nifty premises, just as Broker has one, so does this film, right? It really hooks you in there. But the reason I smiled was the fact that as you were describing all that, the film itself gives us all that in even less time. It's even more compact. Don't blink or go out or come in late or anything like that because the opening few minutes go by really fast. And I actually sort of wondered about that. It really very quickly immerses you in it. What does it immerse you in? Exactly what Marie described. 
And essentially, then it does become a film about women talking. They are going to gather in the barn, have sort of a forum or colloquium or whatever you want to call it, a congress, and they have to decide what to do. And you very accurately laid out the three options they have. The one thing I would add is on the first option in terms of do nothing, you're right, it's do nothing. However, this is an intensely religious community. And so one aspect of doing nothing is forgiveness. So it is actually doing something in that respect. But look at the horrible things they'd be forgiving and then still having to live with in a way they would sort of succumb or just, you know, let life go on as it had been, which is not a very good life for them. And so the film really has a strong ensemble cast and obviously has powerful issues that it deals with. And it really is a debate with the women. The one thing I'd, I'd add just by way of the film itself in terms of the source material, you know, was an actual case in, in Bolivia, as you say, in, in the 1960s Mennonite community. Uh, and then, of course, the book is a, a version of that. And now the film is, is a version of, of, of the book. So it's gone through a few iterations that way. Now that it's become a film, the writer of the film, the screenplay, is by Sarah Polly, who also directed it. I like her work, particularly her documentary, Stories We Tell, which is about her own family history. It's really, really fascinating, you know, by way of material. Now, here's the, where I can get on a soapbox for a moment here by way of, you know, Marie always asks me about Oscar nominations and this and that. And so before you even ask, I'll answer uh, on this <laughs> one. I'll answer on this one. The film has been nominated for Best Picture, okay? It's in that small pool. Sarah Polly has that. She also has been nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. However, she was not nominated for Best Director. And this is where I always sort of smile, or is it a grimace, in that there have been cases in the past, too, where, you know, film not only gets a Best Picture nomination, but other nominations all down the line, except for Best Director. And that's a case where I think, well, did this movie direct itself? And so for me, that's a bit of a complaint, isn't it? The, the fact that if you're going to nominate it in these other categories, how could you not give a nod? To, and of course, this year's uh, directorial pool is, is, is all male. And at least you would have one woman be, being nominated there as well. Though in recent years, I mean, women have won the top prize for, for direction. So I'm, I'm not making that case because things have changed for the better. But this year seems kind of quirky, doesn't it, that, that she would not be in that directorial pool. What do you think? I think it's always strange when something is nominated for Best Picture, but isn't nominated for direction. Because how do you get the Best Picture without directing it well? I mean, I think you and I are in agreement on that, right? Oh, yeah. Now, in particular about this, you know, just in terms of how it compares with the book, because I just finished it, like I said, in the book, the narrator is the one, there's two men left behind when all the men have disappeared to, you know, secure bail for their neighbors. And one of them is the son of an excommunicated family. The mother had a secret school for girls. All of the women in this enclave are illiterate. Nobody can read or write. The men can. He comes back in disgrace after, you know, he leaves to go to university and, you know, everything goes wrong and he comes back, you know, kind of with his tail between his legs and they let him teach the boys in their community how to read and write, but not the women. And he is there in the movie and he's played by Ben Wishaw to take down the minutes of, of what they're saying because they can't do it themselves. So he is a witness, but he's, you know, sort of the enemy, but he's not the enemy in his role. He's, he's just this, you know, sweet, wonderful person. And he's in love with one of the women, but it can't be reciprocated. And there's so many interesting layers to why that is. She's disgraced because she has been violated. 
So since she's not a virgin, she's, you know, spoiled goods. And so she can't marry anybody. All of the people have been, I, mean, I think every single female person in this community has been violated, including like the four-year-old children. And some of them have physical disabilities from the attacks that, you know, continue on throughout their life. There's one character who has no teeth in her mouth because while she was being attacked, uh, the person put his hand over her mouth so forcefully that he broke all of her teeth. And another woman is so injured that she can only walk backwards for a while. Just inconceivable amounts of violence being done and blamed on the women themselves that it must be because Satan visited them in the middle of the night and did this because of their impure thoughts or because they were bad people. But it's really just the fact that the men are using belladonna, which they used to tranquilize animals, to make them unconscious and then perform these terrible acts. So, you know, you don't see any of that, thank God. But just the idea that she would stay in a in a situation like that, what goads them into action is their children. They don't want this to be the kind of world where their children live. It's powerful, isn't it, Mike? Well, picking up what you're saying, I mean, you don't really see a lot of those horrible things. You hear about them. So whether it's the narrator or whether it's the women talking, it's the verbal accounts. And in some ways, you know, I, I like that because our imaginations can fill in the horrible details that way. And you really don't see men to any extent in, in the film because, as Marie said earlier, either they're in jail in town and town is somewhere off in the distance or they've gone to town to raise bail and so on. And so you really just have that token male presence. The fact that the character August, the Ben Wishaw character, is there as the scribe. He's there to take down the minutes. Uh, and he seems like a nice young guy and, and the women like him and so on. I got to tell you, as a male viewer, I appreciated that because he makes the important point that we're not all evil. We're not all terrible. We have our flaws and faults, but, but you know, we, 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 don't, we don't use Belladonna typically on a daily basis. And so I was feeling a little insecure watching it because almost every guy in this movie who's there in absentia, if you will, is guilty as charged, right? They're horrible. And, and, and so I thought, please, I don't want the mob coming after me, you know. <laughs> and so I don't want to sound glib about this because I think on a serious level, it is important to have at least that, when I say token male presence here, I don't mean in the pejorative way, but just as an indication that there are some good men here. And a lot of it actually has to do with questions of upbringing, doesn't it? That the women are talking about their small children as much as anything else, and not only how to protect themselves, but you know what could be done to bring up people better, if you will. And the fact that some guys do grow up with the right value system, and you know uh, August certainly is an example of that, but a lot of them don't. And so, uh, you know, it's something I, I hear about a lot as well in the upbringing. Yes, everyone needs good upbringing, male, female, whatever. But the fact that it's it's the young boys in particular sometimes who, who really, you know, within a patriarchal construct, you know, really, really need the education. And clearly in this community that they haven't got, they've gotten a, a miseducation of, of a disastrous sort. One of the things that is compelling about the story, both the film and the book, is the idea of well, if we're leaving, we're going to have to deal with the fact that we're leaving people that we love. I mean, even, you know, some of the, the men that we are married to, you know, there's still feelings of, you know, fidelity and loyalty. What do we do with that? And also, you know, in this community, uh, boy becomes a man at age 15. So do we just write off all of the 15-year-olds? Can we take the ones that are younger than 15 with us? Can they, you know, are they doomed to repeat 
what has happened once they've come of age? Is there a way to teach them something differently if we get them out, the, out of the situation? And all of these things come up in the discussion. And I have to tell you, by the way, that if you, if you read the book, there is a lot of cursing going on, which sort of surprised me, given that they're also deeply religious. They're also deeply angry, right? So, so you know, they're, they're using words like that. One other aspect of the film that should be mentioned a bit more is it's such an isolated community uh, within the film that it's sort of out of time and out of place in a lot of ways. And so it has that kind of fable-like or allegorical quality to it. We only have a few indications of where it is and when it is. I think the best scene in the film actually is this mysterious truck comes through the fields there and this voice, first of all, you hear the monkeys singing Day, Daydream Believer. And so you say, okay, well, it's, it's either set in, in the late 60s or you know an oldies station or something. But what places it closer to our present is what's the truck blaring? The guy is making an announcement that um, you know, this is the 2010 census and, and, and the voice is blaring to the women you know, sheltered in the houses, you know, come out of your houses to be counted. And there's something for me so ominous and dystopian about that. It's a big brother kind of scene that you realize that they really are scared of that outside world. They have almost no contact. And there's another reference in the film I found really haunting was there's a woman who, who needs some medical attention. And so she goes to a mobile health clinic. What I found interesting about that was, and this is a quick reference, but she walks to wherever the mobile health clinic is. It doesn't come to her. She walks to it wherever it is. And you never see where that is, is. That's really interesting, isn't it? The fact that they were like to almost totally cut off from the world. So when the guys go off to town, town might just be a few miles away, but it might as well be a few hundred miles away. Whatever the authority is, whatever the state is, it's presumably in the United States. It's agrarian. It looks Midwestern, more or less. And yet, you know, that makes the whole film, I think, kind of ominous, doesn't it, Marie? I mean, it, it takes it out of like the, our everyday reality and puts it on the level almost of a kind of allegory. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that absolutely does have an allegorical feel to it. And I did like the metaphor of, you know, come out and stand up to be counted, because that's kind of what they're trying to do in the hayloft when they're trying to figure out should they stay or should they go. I want to mention, though, that I think Daydream Believer was like the perfect song because it is about trying to, can I stand to stay with what I understand to be true here? Or should I make a different decision? But in the book, the song is California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas. So I thought that was a, I don't think that would have worked as well as a song in the movie, but it is jarring because it's so different from what you're seeing that it really gives you a, a contrast. Much as I love California Dreaming, one reason why it would be a mistake to use it in the film is it's a geographic reference. It would, it's like, well, you know, if the women are going to go off, or are they going to cross the Sierra Nevada and go into California or something? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's distracting that way. Whereas the monkey song is more generalized, and, and you can fill in the blanks as you, as you please. Uh, whereas the Mamas and the Papas, it's a wonderful tune, but doesn't it very much sort of place you in that California mindset? So I think it was a very smart move to change that from the book to the film. There's also a wonderful cast. It has Rooney Mara and Claire Foy and Francis McDormand. And it's wonderful to watch all of these actors, you know, apply their craft in this movie. That's I wouldn't say it's hard to watch. It's, it's hard to accept that this kind of thing goes on anywhere. And the reason for the title came out when I was reading the book, because some men discover, or a man discovers these women. They pretend that, that well, well, we just finished making a quilt. And the reason you can't see the quilt is it's just been delivered. They've got all, the, all of these excuses. And they say, you know, there's nothing going on here. It's just women talking. So Mike, I'll give you the last word on 
do you think it's going to win anything? Will it win screenplay or best picture? It's not going to win for for best picture. And screenplay is an interesting question because it's really it's a very skillfully written piece. And, and so I think that's certainly a, a possibility. It's very well regarded, but it's certainly not a big box office film. And there are a number of other well-regarded films this year. So I don't think it has a lock on anything that way. It may be a case of, you know, the nomination is, is honor enough. But, but you know, if, if I could look into the crystal ball like that and, and do it accurately, I'd be a rich person, wouldn't I? <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? That'd be really sweet. That'd be a happy ending. <laughs> well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And if you are interested in the film discussion that Mike mentioned, it is called Through the Eyes of Children. And it is Friday nights at 7 o'clock on Zoom. And you can find more info at howardcc.edu slash film festivals. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then connect with us we are dragon digital radio